E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Mark Vlasic shares a little bit of a long career and perspective in making Oregon Pinot Noir at his winery, St. Innocent. He also brings a little wine with him and a bit of rain, which you may notice in the background of this interview. So we welcome Mark Vlasic to the show. Thanks for taking the time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Great to see you. Uh, so you have a winery in Oregon called St. Innocent, which you started in 1988. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Well, I um, moved to Oregon in 1980. I was uh, in a different career at that time, uh, but I've been drinking wine for a very long time. My father um, discovered wine when I was about seven. At the same time, my mother discovered decent food. Before that, she just burned pork chops and my drank, dad drank martinis. <laughs> it was uh, not something that I was particularly interested in either aspect of it. Uh, but they met a couple who had traveled extensively in Europe. The woman was an accomplished French cook, and uh, they became best friends. And at about that same time, my mother uh, had an opportunity to go to a, a retreat center, essentially, up in Wisconsin, which was where I was uh, born. And or I was actually born in Detroit, but I basically spent all of my childhood in Wisconsin. And uh, the retreat center had brought in a master chef from the Corton Bleu to teach a week-long cooking course. My mother, who couldn't cook anything to save her life, went to this cooking course and just just changed completely. And uh, went from food that I didn't care about eating. In fact, I once walked away in Detroit. Uh, my mother made me some fried eggs or something, and I was like, I'm not eating this. And my dad was like, you have to eat it or you have to leave. And I said, I'm leaving. And you know, five years old, I started marching down the street with my literally like a hobo with a bag of you know clothes on my back and my dad was like where are you gonna go and i said i don't know but i'm not eating it and um after about three blocks he relented and i came home um but at that point she changed and the food became incredible uh and she ended up studying with this woman madame cuny uh who had uh was a, essentially a court temple master chef who trained chefs in her house and had a uh restaurant in her house on weekends um, and she studied with her for 10 years on and off. So it went from no food to incredible. And my dad blames my mother and says, well, you know, she had to have wine to cook. And my mother blames my dad and says, well, he had all this wine and I had to cook something to go with it. Uh, but the reality was that they came hand in hand. And very much of what I'm about is that, that connection between wine and food and the fact that I don't see them as disparate. I see them as a, an entity that is essentially holistic, uh, almost a synergistic effect of when the wine goes with the food and you put those things together that you create a connection between the experience of both that is heightened. And so all everything that I do in winemaking is really about making wines to work with a meal making word and different meals and different personalities so um so i came to oregon with a long history of drinking wine uh, i had some money i was out of school finally had some money was drinking a lot of champagne along with a lot of water discovering oregon now this is 1980 and you have to understand that in 1980 david adelsheim although he had planted a vineyard and made a wine 
a Pinot Noir in 1979, hadn't released a Pinot Noir yet. But I walked into Oregon and thought, well, this is a wine industry, and was drinking all these wines and talking to these people and going to people's tasting rooms and buying and drinking. Had a little wine group, and we would you know, do various regions, including Oregon. So in 1983, I um, had been in Oregon tasting many different wines and uh, picked up an issue of Bon Appetit. And in that issue, there was an article um, about American sparkling wine. And in the second paragraph of the article, Andre Chelyshev, the great Napa Valley winemaker who made literally the first single vineyard Cabernet Sauvignons in Napa Valley, sort of Mr. Napa Valley, uh, and who was actually at the time consulting for Dick Erath up in Oregon, who was one of the pioneers. In that, in that uh, article, he was quoted as saying that the greatest sparkling wine in America would be produced in Oregon, not California because Oregon was the right place to grow the grapes of Champagne, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay. And I just was reading this article, and it's like the lights went on, or maybe some lights went off. I'm not exactly sure. I just said, I'm going to do that. And that was it. And at that point, it became uh, probably just shy, or maybe not just shy of an obsession. And uh, I spent five years trying to figure out how actually to do that, because although I knew a lot about tasting wine, my dad was a member of the Society of Wine Educators from its inception. He was actually the first um, American to be given their Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, uh, he'd never made a bottle of wine, and he didn't know how to make a wine in any way, shape, or form. So I uh, had an opportunity to do a number of things over the next five years, including work with the original wine laboratory in Napa Valley. It was called The Wine Lab because it was the only one. I spent a summer there. I worked with the first Oregonian to make sparkling wine, Fred Arterberry. Uh, he was also one of the first Oregon uh, people to, or winemakers, to create uh, single vineyard Pinot Noirs from estates that weren't his own. Oh, okay. Uh, most everyone, people are making single vineyard wines, but they were all the estate wines. The idea of working with just different vineyards uh, and making single vineyard wines was not something that was widely done. This was long before Ken Wright or the people that you associate with multiple single vineyard Pinot Noirs showed up in the state. Was he labeling them on the label that way? He was, yes. He uh, he had two what are now classic vineyards, uh, Marsh, which in those days was called the Red Hills Vineyard, but now it's called Marsh Vineyard, and Weber, which is now part of Archery Summit. Oh, okay. Uh, so these are great vineyards in the Dundee Hills. Marsh was the fifth vineyard planted in Oregon. It turned out it was the vineyard of his father-in-law. Uh, and so he had made grapes from them, uh, from those that site. He also uh, made a great deal of more blended Pinot Noir uh, that was from Freedom Hill, which has now become my largest source of, of grapes. It's the only vineyard that I actually make three different wines from. I make a Pinot Noir, a Chardonnay, and a Pinot Blanc from that site. Uh, so that sort of set up my relationship with Dan and Helen Duchet, who, who have farmed that vineyard since it was planted. So in 1988, then I started making wine. I apprenticed with Fred through the 87 harvest and in the summer before that. And in 88, he said that I could make a small amount of wine there until I had my own place. So I made basically 600 cases of wine. Uh, I made... Uh, a single vineyard uh, Chardonnay from Seven Springs. I was trying to make a single vineyard Pinot Noir from the same vineyard, but 1988 was a crop failure year, and it just was not enough fruit. So I ended up blending it with some grapes that I was going to use for sparkling wine, and then and found another source for some sparkling grapes and made a sparkling wine. So I made three wines. For me, it was sort of like, well, you got a white wine to start with, you've got a red wine to uh, you know have with your main course, and you have sparkling to um, party with, you know, to have a good time. Uh, and that uh, was quite successful. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, in fact, people would say, well, you know, why are your wines as good as they are? And I would say, I don't know. And uh, my wife uh, at one point just chimed in a bit, you know, blurted out potentially uh, and said, Mark was born to make wine. <laughs> and uh, I have no better explanation because it, it's, it's certainly not an intellectual thing. I mean, there's a lot of intellect involved in producing wine. You have to, there's, there is a lot of 
science uh, that's available. There's a lot of science that's not available. Uh, you know, I remember hearing a very distinguished professor at Davis, uh, UC Davis, the great winemaking school in California, uh, stand up in front of us and was doing a whole seminar on phenolics and tannins. And he said, you know, I don't really uh, propose that I have any way to tell you when tannins are green or when they're ripe. He said, you know what they are. You put them in your mouth and you can tell. But I don't have a lab test that'll tell you that answer. And it just uh, reinforces how little we know about the specific chemistry of why wines actually taste a specific way. We know a lot about things that make wine stable or unstable and, and things that will promote oxidization or dealing with reductive issues. We have a lot of information about those things. We have a lot of microbiologic information. But why does wine taste the way it is? When are grapes ripe? Every year they do seminars on when to pick. And every year they basically say, mm, we don't really know. You know, it's really, that has to be an intuitive thing that the winemaker just understands. That the winemaker can go in a vineyard and taste the grapes. And, uh, and some people run a bunch of labs, but ultimately it comes down to a sensory evaluation of what's there. Is that where you want it to be to make what you want to make in that year? And I think that's an important thing to remember that that there are winemakers who make what they believe is an ideal wine. And so they're trying to sort of get rid of what happens and what changes in one vintage to another. There are other winemakers like myself that say, you know, the vintage is part and parcel to what we're creating. So it's important that the vintages are different. It is a part of the characteristic of a wine, part of the personality of what we're creating. And so to, to reflect those differences is important. And the concept that one vintage is good and one vintage is junky uh, or not good or uh, of inferior quality is a vast oversimplification and probably at its very core not accurate. Um, there are certainly vintages which are much more difficult for us to make good wine. There's no question. And again, I defer to my wife who says, you know, when the vintages are tough, it's where you separate the men from the boys or the, you know, or the women from the girls. I mean, essentially, it is when you, you have to pull out all those resources to say, okay, how am I going to get this fruit ripe, first of all? How am I going to keep it from getting rotten, which is in Pinot Noir is a disaster. Uh, in white wine, a little rot is actually quite lovely. I mean, some of the great white wines of the world are made from botrytis fruit. Of course, there's a difference between botrytis and just gray rot, but usually we can manage those differences. Um, but, uh, but the differences between vintages are more about the balance of the wine. Is the wine more about its fruit? less about the other things, the spices, the flowers, the herbs, the forest floor? Is it more pungent and just in-your-face fruit? Or is it more layered? Is it more nuanced? Is it uh, relatively low acid and higher alcohol? And those usually go together, so it's more accessible in its youth, it's easy to drink. Or is it a little higher in acid, a little lower in alcohol? Uh, and, and thus it's built a little more for aging. It's building, built for people that want to put it down. And that's really where the essences of vintage variation come from. I think I probably digress. No, but that's interesting, though, because you're somebody that seems to be looking for and appreciating the differences between multiple vineyard sites, between different grape varieties, between different styles, uh, between different vintages. And maybe that's what has drawn me to several of your wines. Seems like there's a little bit more subtle understanding than uh, analog, binary, on or off, good or bad. Uh, do you think that that's true? And what would some of those differences be, if so, between some of the vineyards you've worked with? Well, I absolutely think it's true. I think that it is it is all those secondary flavors beyond just the obvious fruit. But it is even in the fruit. I mean, vineyards, there are vineyards which are very cherry. There are vineyards which are very much more berry. Then there are vineyards that vary between red and black and sometimes very black and sometimes even in the blue fruits. And we I actually brought 
a wine today, the Mumtazi Vineyard, which is really very much into the blue-black fruit realm. This is quite unusual in Oregon. People usually are looking for cherries and red fruit and these kind of perfumey nuances. And this particular wine comes from a site which is just geologically, geographically, and climatically different. Mm -hmm. It just isn't that kind of place. Uh, and it's very much, I think, reflected in what's in the bottle. Where the Dundee Hills, the original place in Oregon where you grew grapes, uh, where David Lett from Irie planted his first vineyard, where Marsh is, where Weber is, where Domaine Drouin is. I mean, it, it is a God-given place to grow Pinot Noir. It's easy to grow Pinot Noir there. I mean, it's, it's made. We were given this gift of this site, and thank God David Lett didn't plant his vineyard in some hillside on the other side of the valley where he probably would have been not at all successful, would have abandoned the effort and left, which his professors told him he was going to abandon it because it was, it was all going to mildew and he wasn't right. going to get any wine. And thank God he picked the right side and made brilliant wine almost from day one. The, the differences between these sites then affect the wine. And I think that the way that that happens is very much uh, the same way that that anything develops, uh, if you put a grape in a place where it's easy for it to grow, where it has lots of dirt underneath it. And of course, you can't grow grapes in really fertile soil because what happens is all they do is grow leaves and the fruit never gets ripe because if the vine says, well, I'm, I'm happy, I'm just going to grow leaves. That's my job to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Only when it's actually limited in its energy does it say, oh, well, I better make some babies because I need to uh, procreate. And what we make wine from, um, as a, uh, Lucy Morton, a great viticulturist, said, we make wine from the babies of a vine. Now, the idea that a vineyard has to completely suffer in order to make great wine is also inaccurate because without the leaves you got no ripeness. The, where does the food come from to get the grape ripe? It comes from the leaves. And so if the vine is dying, essentially, or very much stressed, and doesn't have a good leaf canopy, then you're never going to get the fruit ripe. Realize that, that a vine will bud out in the spring, and the original leaves, by the time you pick the fruit, are four months old. And those leaves are they're old. They're giving up the ghost. And it's those leaves that are growing later in laterals and additional foliage that grows more in the middle of the season that's really providing the energy at the end of the growing season for the grape actually to get its sugar and, and all those flavor chemicals that are being created inside that berry. And that requires energy. It doesn't happen. It requires water and energy. Uh, and that's sort of the basic photosynthesis carbon dioxide, which, thank God, is floating around in the air and maybe a little too much, but the grapes are helping us to get rid of it. Um, carbon dioxide, water, and sunlight. And it's the combination of that that makes sugar and all the other components that, that uh, the, vine, the vine has and that the grape more specifically has that we taste as wine. So uh, if you take then... I, We'll return back to the original premise. If you put the vine in a place where it can grow quite happily, where it's warm enough in the day but not too warm and it's cool and not cool at night to retain acidity, then then the vine will tend to express itself in a almost a bubilient fashion. Lots of red fruit, lots of perfume, um, very accessible, nice tannins but not hard that are ripe. And that's very much the profile of the Dundee Hills. The soil there is volcanic. It's relatively young soil, 40 to 80,000 years old. Volcanic soils are clays. Uh, they have a fair amount of nutrients that are available to the vine. They're not loamy soils like you would grow onions or, you know, or, or row crops in. But for grapevines, they're very good. And they hold water. And in Oregon, it doesn't rain much in the summer. In fact, that's one of the gifts of why we can farm so sustainably and that we have so many biodynamic and, and uh, what we call live certify, which is a very, very rigorous, sustainable certification. Why we're able to do that so easily and have such a high proportion because basically isn't humid. It's cold at night, it's warm in the day, it doesn't rain for months. I mean, when I left Oregon, it hadn't rained since June 22nd. Now, that's actually pretty normal for us, you know, to go six or eight or eight, 10 weeks without any rain. That's just the way it is. Is that determined by where you are in relation to the Cascade Mountain Range? 
It's more about the coast range. The weather comes out of the Gulf of Alaska, and the coast range separates us from the ocean, and it's very, very, it's 3,000 feet high. And so essentially the weather pattern in the winter when the storms are coming out of the Gulf of Alaska and the jet stream dips down, uh, and so those storms are brought towards us and over our over our area and even farther down into California. But really our weather comes out of Alaska. I see. So in the summer, the uh, the jet stream is is pushed northward, and those all those storms and all of that weather essentially almost like it makes an arch above us, and usually into Canada. Usually it doesn't even get into Washington. It gets more into Washington. If you look at the the amount of rainfall in Vancouver, British Columbia, in Seattle, and in Portland, it just drops as you go farther south because again the jet stream is is way up north and it slowly works its way down and by the time we get into the october and into november then the jet stream is in our face and all those storms are coming in the coast range then is blunts the effect of those storms it'll rain on the coast of oregon you know 100 plus inches a year in the coast range sometimes up to 200 inches a year but 40 miles away in the valley it rains 40 inches a year and then you go over the Cascade Mountains on to the east of us, which are ten and twelve thousand foot volcanic peaks, and basically all the rest of the water falls there. Uh, so two thirds of Oregon is actually high desert. People don't think of Oregon as being high desert, but that's in essence what it really. Most of Oregon is high desert, and nothing lives there except a few cows and a lot of golf courses, uh, because it's a wonderful place. Bend has three hundred days of sunny year, and and I don't know how many dozens of golf courses, but. If that's what you love, it's a great place to go. You can ski in the mountains, and you can come down in the afternoon and play golf. It's not a bad deal. Um, so we're in this sort of lovely zone where we have just about the same amount of rain that you have in Burgundy. Mm -hmm. We have uh, the ocean, which has a cool influence, which we see mostly at night in the summer, not in the daytime. If we had that cool influence during the day, we really couldn't grow anything because we're 500 miles north of the north coast, Pinot Noir country of California. And it's just that much colder as you get farther north. But because the mountains, instead of, you know, 1,000 feet or 3,000 feet high, it essentially blocks all that cold breeze in the day. So the valley is this essentially oval tube that, uh, that collects heat all day and gets to be, you know, high 80s, 90s, routinely, sunny, low humidity, but then as the sun goes over the mountains, the air mass cools, just like a hot air balloon cools, it collapses, and the air has to come from somewhere to fill it. And because the Cascade Mountains are 10,000 feet high, it doesn't come from there. It comes from the ocean where there's, it's 3,000 feet. And it turns out another uh, geologic or geographic bonus is that there is a pass in that coast range, literally lateral to the, to the lower section of wine, Oregon's Willamette Valley, the wine country. So right across from the Willamette Hills, at the mouth of what's called the McMinnville Appalachian, there is a gap through the coast range called the Van Duzer Corridor, which is 800 feet high. And the winds literally at night blow like a banshee through that corridor. I mean, it is 30, 35 mile an hour winds every night as the sun sets, which is why, unlike in New York, where the sun goes down and it's just hot, in Oregon, the sun goes down and uh, and the cold winds start to blow and the temperature will drop easily 20, but more commonly 30 degrees in an hour or two. Now, if you're actually at the outlet of the Van Duzer, the McMinnville Appalachian, one of these vineyards that we're tasting today, Mamtazi Vineyard, literally the temperature will drop that 30 degrees in half an hour. It will literally go from you're standing on the hill in your t-shirt, you're trudging around this very steep vineyard, sweating, and the sun goes down and the wind starts to blow and you need fleece. It's just crazy. I mean, literally, it'll go from the 90s to the 60s. And at nighttime, it will drop. Like at harvest, I will pick fruit early in the morning. And I rarely get fruit that I have picked first thing in the morning that's over 50 degrees. Oh. Usually, it's in the 40s. Now, that means that... That's after the sun comes. We can't pick. We don't pick at night. So we only pick after. The, so the sun's already on the fruit. The dew's being, we want the dew to dry up. So we pick a, you know, start picking about a half hour after the sun comes up in the morning. So there is some sun effect and some radiation that's already on the fruit. So it's warmer than it would be at night. When you think about being 90 some degrees in the day and below 50 at night, 
sometimes we're getting more like 40 degree variation. That's very good for the vine because the vine, if it's warm at night, needs energy. It basically stays metabolically active. It doesn't essentially go to sleep. And the vine is smart. It knows that the sugar is important for storing for the winter and for the grapes. So at nighttime, the vine gets its energy from acid. So in a, in, in a region where it's warm at night, the grape uses its acid for fuel and the acid drops and the wines get softer and softer, which is especially problematic for Pinot Noir and for white grapes because you want that acidity because that's the core. Remember, Pinot Noir has a lot of tannin in the grape skin, but not that much that sticks in the wine. Why? I don't know that anyone really knows, but the reality is that there's, there's actually more potential extractable tannin in Pinot Noir than it is in Cab or Merlot. I didn't know that. Yeah, but only about half in the wine. So when you look at the structure of a wine, the structure of a wine is essentially the addition of tannin and acidity. Mm -hmm. So if you have a lot of tannin, you don't need a lot of acidity to create the balance, which is why Cabs and Merlots and, and some Syrahs, but more European Syrahs, especially in Northern Rhone Syrahs, have a lot more acidity because it's a cold valley also. Um, but I, again, I digress. The, the idea that the structure for Pinot Noir needs acidity is not only because we always think of it as a food wine, but because it won't have as much tannin as Cab and Merlot. So the acidity is the, the other backbone of the structure of Pinot Noir. And the two of them together are very complementary and essentially enhance the food compatibility because acidity is what helps to clean off our palate. And to refresh in our mouth. You're a noted chef yourself, uh, as I've heard many people say that uh, you're pretty good around the kitchen. You do some dinners for the Oregon Pinot Camp, which I think you're a part of. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, my, my uh, mother originally told me that uh, she wasn't going to cook, teach me to cook because her mother didn't teach her to cook, but I was a very intense child. <laughs> and, um, and basically, uh, she said, well, okay, you can need bread. So we used to bake bread every Saturday. So when I was about, you know, seven or eight years old, I would need eight loaves of bread every Saturday, and we'd make, we'd make bread. Uh, and then I got really interested in desserts because I had a really bad sugar tooth, you know, uh, when I was a kid. And one night she came home. I was babysitting my sister. I think I was 11, and I was standing over the stove beating this double boiler. And my mother said it was like 11.30 at night. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm making this cake that I saw in this cookbook that was real pretty. And it's called a Ganoise. And she said, she looked at it and she said, that's a Genois. That's the hardest cake in the world to make. What are you doing? And I said, I'm going to make this cake. And she said, okay. And we, she sat down, pulled out the electric mixer because it takes forever to beat it by hand. And I made my first Genois. And, and that just, you know, and then she realized that I was serious about cooking and that we just cooked together. And one of my great delights when I was a kid, probably not a lot of kids' great delight, but was my mother used to create these great dinner parties frequently, like almost every weekend for, you know, 12 people. And she would cook multiple courses. And it would always be the amazement of the guests that my mother would have her heels and her pearls on and pull out, you know, five or six courses and not, not break a sweat. I can't do that. <laughs> that part I didn't learn. Uh, but it, it was amazing to cook with her and see how she integrated all of that knowledge. It was fascinating. Uh, and so I, I retained some of that experience and then, and then worked. You know, I, I, when you're in the wine business, you hang out with chefs. Mm -hmm. You work with chefs. You show wines to chefs. And I got to know several chefs who basically allowed me to come in the kitchen. And, you know, I, I remember we, I was with a, a restaurateur in, in Salem who did a private dinner for, for like 26 people. And he was basically there in the kitchen by himself. And I was showing him some wine. I mean, anything to do. And he said, well, you want to stay and cook with me? And I was like, sure. And we, you know, in a half hour, we turned out, you know, 26 pl main plates uh, in a little in a kitchen much smaller than this apartment. Uh, and that's uh, pretty small. That's, yeah, you know, it wasn't a big kitchen. And it was just fascinating. And then I started cooking for people because I felt like, you know, these wines are really for food. In fact, I wasn't originally open to the public, except twice a year. In Oregon, there's two big weekends when 
as many wineries are open that open are open and now almost everyone's open but in the old days it was maybe half of the wineries that were open and of course in the old days when i started there was probably only 50 people making pinot noir now there's 400 um, so it wasn't a huge community now it's these weekends are huge so it's memorial weekend and thanksgiving weekend basically six months apart almost to the day um, and I decided early on that if I was going to be open and I was going to show wine, that I was going to show it with food. My mother had some classic recipes that were great with Pinot Noir, leg of lamb, herb leg of lamb, and what was called French beans. And uh, so I started cooking those things. And at some point, and I don't remember when, uh, I started making grilled salmon, which is very you know, wonderful in Oregon. It was an herb, uh, or not, not an herb, it was a marinated grilled salmon recipe that I did a variation of the steamboat inn, which is a wonderful fishing inn down in, in the kind of the middle of the, of Oregon. So it's, um, in the area close to Roseburg. So I used one of their recipes for, for a marinated grilled salmon. And then I, in, at one point started making cassoulet and that's become sort of the signature dish for the winery. And when you make cassoulet for a thousand people, you think about it a lot. And, and uh, <laughs> that's a big pot. That's a big pot. Yeah. It's, it's about uh, 14 big containers of cassoulet. Uh, and that recipe has become, you know, a bit of, uh, I guess it would be, famous if not infamous uh, and uh, and people literally talk about the cassoulet and i think the cassoulet is is a wonderful company with a lot of my wines because there's a lot of layers to it and the wines have a lot of layers and when you put that kind of that different flavors of the root vegetables and the mushrooms and the and the meats and the be different beans and you you know you take the time and you create almost this kind of textural umami it just enhances the things that i'm also trying to put into the wines but salmon also is pretty friendly and it always seemed oh. kind of serendipitous that oregon had so much salmon and also so much pinot noir uh kind of one of the great wonderful coincidences of of the wine history you know historically it was it's interesting because david Lett came to oregon and you know, obviously ate the salmon because mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. in those, especially in those days, there was ocean salmon and river salmon all, you know, from the spring all the way through the summer. He, uh, he basically said, I make Pinot Noir for grilled salmon and I make Pinot Gris for poached salmon or baked salmon or I've any other, every, any other salmon than other than grilled. If it's uh -huh. grilled, it's Pinot Noir. If it's anything else and it's salmon, it's Pinot Gris. And that's originally why he made those two grapes. And if people, you know, now there's a lot of Pinot Gris in the world, but, but I remember when I started that almost all the Pinot Gris, in fact, literally all the Pinot Gris in the United States was made in Oregon. At one point, there was about 30-some different Pinot Gris in Oregon, and there was still essentially none out of California. And this whole Pinot Grigio thing from Italy was, you, you couldn't find a Pinot Grigio to save your life. I mean, it just didn't exist. And then Oregon started making more and more Pinot Gris. People started getting on the bandwagon, and, and the Californians and the importers looked at what was happening and said, wait a minute. This is working at this price point, at this kind of more aperitif kind of profile where it's friendly and has nice spice and some pretty fruits and, and often it was a little bit sweet and we were making money and selling it. For us, it was a cash flow wine. It sure, was like, you can you know, release it. Yeah, you release it and it's sold before the next vintage. It's like, wow, that, that works, you know? In many cases, you sell it before you pay for all the, your last grape payment, which is, which is wonderful because of Pinot Noir. You know, it's more than a year later before it even hits the market. It's a much more uh, cash-intensive kind of production. So it was a godsend for us, and now now it's a godsend for a whole lot of people around the world that are selling huge amounts of Pinot Gris. Do you think it's found its niche? I, f I feel like there was some stylistic uh, questioning now and again with Pinot Gris in Oregon. Has it determined its its style, or is that even necessary? Oh, I think that it probably would be helpful, and I would say no, probably hasn't really achieved its style. I think there's still people making Pinot Gris in a variety of styles, from this kind of slightly sweet, you know, where the aromatics are really accentuated, into a more Alsace textural style, which is more about Pinot Gris' almost unique ability to go with spicy dishes. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you start playing Thai and Vietnamese and black and fish and, you know, Cajun kind of things, 
that really becomes beer territory, not wine territory. Mm -hmm. uh, and Pinot Gris that's done in a riper style, especially if it's dry, actually works really well with those dishes. Uh, it's actually the style that I've chosen to make, but I don't make very much of it. You know, I make six or eight hundred cases a year. I mean, it's a it's it's a single vineyard wine, much like it would be uh, for the single vineyard designated Pinot Gris and Alsace, which are really a paradigm shift from the normal house, you know, Pugel and Trimbach, the regular Pinot Gris, is again this kind of easy, you know, picked at relatively high crop levels, fermented relatively cold, bottled relatively young, and just kind of easy. The single vineyard grays tend to be the reverse of that. They tend to be cropped much lower, sometimes less than half of the crop of the, the larger cousins. They're picked much later, and they're left in the winery longer to develop. So they're not so much about fruit. They're really more about the feel and the texture. And so when you take a white dish and you add some weight to it, like confit of duck or like a blackened fish, or kind of a richly done portendoin, all of a sudden Pinot Gris becomes a really interesting alternative to the other white wines. You know, my feeling is when you throw a sauce at something, it becomes Chardonnay, because Chardonnay is so much richer on the palate. It has the ability to convey a lingering texture very, very well. And so when you add a sauce to a dish, you're essentially stretching those flavors across the mouth, then it becomes Chardonnay food. But when you don't have a sauce, and it's more about the essence of that, that dish, whether it's meat or vegetables or mushrooms, and that dish becomes very much about its texture, especially about texture with some heat thrown in, then that style of Pinot Gris works. And so there are people doing the richer Pinot Gris, more textural, the lighter, easier Pinot Gris. There are some people that are doing Pinot Gris in barrel, trying to build a little more breadth and at the sacrifice, sacrificing some of the fruits. But I don't think that uh, there is a dominant style. Certainly the people that are making it easier to drink and more fruity are making larger volumes. So we see more of it in the market. But if you, if you look at the numbers by the numbers, I think it's kind of all over the board. And what about Pinot Noir? So many people have come to the area to plant Pinot Noir. It really seems to be to have become the signature grape of of Oregon in many ways. What are the stylistic options available, and what do you encompass within your different bottlings? Well, I mean, the market forces us to to address the issue of Pinot Noir at a lower price point, mm -hmm. and and in Oregon. But I think in most places, um, the reality with Pinot Noir is that it's very difficult to grow Pinot Noir at, a low, at a, anything but a low crop level. When you increase the crop level up to even a fraction of what you could easily grow, you know, Cab or Merlot or Syriac, Pinot Noir just loses all of its flavor. So inherently, since the amount of labor to, to bring an acre of grapes to ripeness is fixed, it's not based on the number of pounds, it's based on the land surface area. If you can't hang five or 10 or 15 tons an acre, which you could never do in Pinot Noir, if you can't do that, it becomes very difficult to make a 7.99 bottle of Pinot Noir. That's mm -hmm. any good, that tastes like anything. Um, in fact, you know, around the world, you know, Pinot Noir only has to have 75% of Pinot Noir. So you can, you can basically take some Pinot Noir you crop heavily that doesn't have a lot of character and just blend 25% of Syrah and Merlot or something or Cab into it. Uh, probably not Cab because it probably shows, but it's common to blend it with some Syrah and just kind of build it up. And then you can keep the price point down and crop it heavier. And you can still call it Pinot Noir on the label. You can outside of Oregon. In Oregon, you can't. Oregon has a much stricter labeling law, so you, don't, you can't play that game. And as soon as you put a vineyard name on a Pinot Noir a site-specific wine, then it has to be all Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't deviate from that. Um, but So there's a style in Oregon that is driven by a need to have a wine not at seven ninety nine because it's not reality. We just can't do that in Oregon. You can do that in California. You can do it other places and do it in Chile, you know, and you can blend to make it. But in Oregon, with the labeling laws and the climate that we have, it's not reality. So we're looking at seventeen ninety nine, you know, twenty three ninety nine, twenty four ninety nine. That's the kind of the base level of Pinot Noir, and there's a huge demand for that, and it drives styles. You know, you can't you can't put that all in the high percentage of new French oak and 
make that work. Not at eleven hundred dollars a barrel. You know, that doesn't doesn't happen. Uh, but there is a demand to create a more budget minded, uh, cost conscious Pinot Noir in that sort of twenty or eighteen to twenty five dollar range. And a lot of people do that. Uh, and generally, it's those wines are made for the money. Are there's a lot of energy, and they're not high-profit margin wines. There's a lot of people that are doing it and just kind of scraping by. It's a lot easier for people to do it in high-volume vintages because there's there's blending material out there. You can buy bulk wine and do it. In a low-crop vintage like 2008, 2010, it's, those wines kind of disappear because there's no fruit available. There's Everyone was short on the harvest, and, and you can't really do it. Then there is the whole variety of uh, reserve-level wines, uh, for people that believe that that blending across sites is making this most superior, the most uh, interesting wine, and and certainly that comes out of Burgundy. There's a lot of blended Pinot Noir that just has the name of the village on it rather than a single vineyard that is indeed blended. In fact, everyone in Burgundy, I think, would admit that uh, other than a few really fantastic sites, that Pinot Noir is much better if you essentially blend from a wine that maybe has more structure and a wine that has more fruits and wine that has more acidity and, and wine that has lower acidity. And you put these things together, you can make a more homogeneous, a more attractive, more expressive wine. So every year, somewhat similar character. Yeah. Well, maybe not every year, but more of a character of the house, mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. kind of balance of the house that will vary. The, the balance of the fruit and the acidity and the alcohol will vary because you can't really change that. But But there is a style of either very precocious or very fruit-driven or very spice-driven. You know, the amount of oak that these people use will remain essentially in balance. And that that's that's really the style of the house. And, the, you know, the most famous, I think, is probably the Ponzi Reserve. Over many, many years, this has become really a, 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 one of the great wines that's blended in Oregon. Um, then you get into, or, you know, the other really great would be the uh, Domaine Juan Oregon wine. Mm -hmm. It's um, it's essentially blended. It's primarily their estate, but they use a number of vineyards around the Willamette Valley and put those pieces together and make a very lovely wine at a very fair price point. And it's very it it, it reflects the vintage, but its basic style is is very consistent with what Veronique is intending to produce. Then you have people that are making single vineyard wine, and then you really find much more of the expression of the personality. So then you have people that are, and of the place where their grapes primarily come from. Of the place. Yeah, of that place. And that will vary then very much on the geography and geology. So like we, I referenced earlier, the Dundee Hills is a great place. So you have wines that are very perfumey and very red-fruited and have kind of soft tannins. And as we started looking at these new Appalachians in Oregon within the northern Willamette Valley, and we started looking, well, the Dundee Hills is one, and then we looked at the Yamil Carlton district and the McMinnville area and Ribbon Ridge and the Old Amity Hills and the Shale Mountains, we started looking at, well, how are these really, are there, is there a difference? Is there a structural difference? And I think that as it, as it turns out, the structural difference isn't so much north and south, but it's more east and west. It has a lot to do with uh, the influence of that cold breeze in the evening and how fast those vineyards cool off. And actually also how hot they are. And you'd think that as you go more to the center of the valley, it get hotter. Well, it actually does, but there are basically no vineyards in the center of the valley. Uh, the vineyards are almost all, not exclusively, but, but the vast majority of the vineyards are on the west side of the valley. And there's a river that runs, the Lamette River runs, hence the name of the valley, runs sort of through the middle of the valley. It turns out that almost all of wine country is on the, on the west side of the river. And the heat, the flat farmland, is on the east side of the river. And the river is big enough that it prevents that heat from moving across. Just like if you go next to a, the river here in New York, or you go next to a lake, or you go by the ocean, and as you get close to the ocean, it immediately cools. Well, that cool, is, that cool influence isn't just on the ground. It goes straight up. Mm -hmm. And that heat doesn't penetrate that. You, if you, you can go up in the air next to the ocean, it's still cold. It isn't like you go up and the heat jumps over it. It just stops. It's like a wall. And so the river really blunts the heat of the valley. So it's actually the hottest places are actually right next to the coast range where the river is pretty far away. 
and there's no other large bodies of water. And essentially, there are some areas with large kind of flat, hot valleys. So within wine country that you think of it, most of those are interspersed sets of hills. So when you look around from one vineyard, you see more hills. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there are areas next to the coast range, like these two wines that I brought today, Freedom Hill and Mumtazi, which as you stand in the vineyard and look, you see just hundreds of square miles of flat farmland below you. You're on a big hill, but there's just this flatness. And that collects a lot of heat. If that was forest, it would be cool. We all know that, but it's not. It's it's farms, it's wonderful farms, growing berries and, and fruits and and everything you can imagine. And in, in the Willamette Valley, you can literally grow almost anything you can imagine. Um, so that heat rises up and those vineyards tend to be hotter. And that then affects the way they ripen. And given more heat in the day, the skins get riper and you build more tannin. So as opposed to Dundee Hills, which is moderate, as you move farther west, especially into the McMinnville AVA, you're getting more heat, more intensity of sunshine, especially in the afternoon on these grapes, and they're getting more dense, harder almost, edgier, more powerful. And then you couple that with this cold wind that's blowing at night, and really those vineyards that are far west are cooling faster, so you're retaining more acidity. All of a sudden, you have this reverse phenomenon. More, usually when it's hot in the day, it's hot at night. Mm -hmm. When it's cool in the day, it's colder at night. And so a wine that is hot in the day has really nice tannins, but because it's usually warmer at night, its acid is softer, so it creates a balance. The place that's cool in the day has maybe not as ripe skins, but has lots of acidity, so you get structure from that. But this place has both. So all of a sudden you go from the Dundee Hills, which is only like 17 miles away, which is very round and red and beautiful. And you go to this place that's giving you really ripe skins and retaining a lot of acidiness, this huge structure. The other part that really plays into this is the Dundee Hills also has this relatively rich volcanic soil, which is six to 10 feet deep in most places. But you go to this edge of the coast range and you're going to much older, much poorer soil, that has less nutrients and less water. So the vine is struggling to get struggling to do his job. And so that results in you tasting that struggle. So the, the wines are not so generous. They're not so red and pretty and perfumey, but they're darker, they're spicier, they're more rustic, they have more weight in them. And so within a short east to west distance, you have a very dramatic change in this sort of terroir aspect. And that to me is the most fascinating. And that's really what I'm trying to create in the winery is find these different places and then Mumtazi is a big vineyard. It has low altitude, it has high altitude vineyards. But for me, what I'm looking at, since I want to express this site, I actually go to the most difficult place, which is way in the back, way in the top of the hill where the soil is really thin, the hills are really steep, and it kind of rolls around from southeast to southwest. So you get sometimes some sunburn on the fruit and the vines are relatively small. I mean, literally in Mumtazi, I have some vines that are 12 years old that still essentially produce nothing. That's crazy in a vineyard. 12 years old ought to be, you know, have trunks as big as my wrist and, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it ought to have beautiful canopies and it ought to be happy. And literally these things are like the size of the neck of a bottle. And, and, they're, and there's literally clusters that you could, I mean, you know, you could put them in a shot glass. I mean, it's insane. It's like, what am I doing here? Like, I can't make wine out of it. I mean, I can make wine out of this, but I can make nothing out of it. I mean, almost essentially nothing. Um, but that struggle, I think, is very interesting to taste. Well, we have an example here, so let's uh, let's yeah. give it a shot and see so. what, uh, what you have to tell us about it. So I brought Mumtazi 2010. This is a biodynamic vineyard that's, uh, that is, is biodynamically certified. 2010 was overall relatively cool growing season. In fact, if you look climatically at the whole growing season, it was actually the coldest growing season in Oregon in 30 years. So much for global warming and, and you know, more global weirdness. I mean, it just, it, everything is varying dramatically. It went from one of the hottest years ever in 2006 to one of the coldest years in a long, long time in 2010. Um, the effect, what really saved us in 2010 was it was sunny in October. And that allowed the skins to actually get ripe while maintaining really nice acidity and relatively low alcohols. And a lot of people are talking about alcohol and Pinot Noir and alcohol in red wines or even in white wines. And this is a vintage that if that's something that you're concerned about, you get. 
mm-hmm. just naturally. We weren't making high alcohol wines because the grapes didn't get that ripe. And generally, people don't dump a lot of sugar. They don't shaptalize a lot in Oregon. So, and I shaptalize almost never unless the alcohols are extremely low. If I've got 11% alcohol, then I'm going to shaptalize it up to 12 or 12 and a half. Uh, and that actually happened in 2011, where we had sugars that were lowest I'd ever seen at with ripe, with reasonably ripe fruit. There was just no sugar because it was such a late year. And so much of the time when the grape was maturing was way at the end of the growing season. I mean, literally, we picked fruit into November. I had never, never done that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In fact, the latest day I ever picked any fruit was Riesling when I was working with Fred Arterberry in 1998. And we picked it on Halloween. That was <laughs> it, you know. But I never picked fruit in November, and I literally picked Pinot Noir on November 5th. I mean, it was like, wow, in 2011. So 2010 then has this lovely balance of good, nice acidity, relatively low alcohols, but enough ripeness in the skin. And to me, that is really what, what identifies the vintage itself. And there is a kind of purity to the vintage, a kind of uh, freshness to it. Uh, 2009 was a much was a riper vintage it was earlier it was very lovely summer for the grapes the vines were fantastic i'd never never seen canopies that were as beautiful as i saw in 2009 the vineyards had all kinds of energy to ripen the fruit and it did ripen the fruit beautifully there's a gorgeous lush round fruit was really a consumer's vintage 2010 is more of the vintage for the collector because these wines potentially age very long and also for people that are fans of Burgundy, because mm-hmm. they're more about the nuance, because you don't have that large amount of heat, you don't have that kind of lushness. The wines are more about their terroir. Do you find a lot of Burgundian fans uh, drawn to your winery in particular, amongst the choices in Oregon? Um, it's a really good question, and I don't have a really good answer. I certainly have fans that like Burgundy. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of fans that also really just like American wine. They just don't like overstated American wine. Mm-hmm. And do you like Burgundy? Is I that... love Burgundy. Okay, just curious. Yeah, I have. Yeah, I travel to Burgundy almost every year. Since, oh, you do. Okay. Yeah, and I, I, um, and I look forward to those visits. Uh, do you think uh, that's a common denominator amongst Oregon producers at this time, or as that? That they travel to Burgundy or they like Burgundy? Yeah. I think they like Burgundy. I think yeah. There's no question about that. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know any winemaker that's, uh, that produces you know, Pinot Noir that, that doesn't drink Burgundy. And if you bring a bottle of Burgundy, it puts a big smile on their face. Yeah, there's no, no question. Are they trying to produce Burgundy? No. I mean, I think that the people in Oregon have been around long enough to realize that it isn't Burgundy. Right. It doesn't have the same kind of soil. It doesn't have the same climate. In Burgundy, it rains every month, almost the same amount. Uh, it doesn't. It's not so cold at night as we are. I mean, we really have this benefit of warm days, cool nights, and basically no rain in the growing season after the fruit that really identifies Oregon Pinot Noir and that people comment on all the time. That, you know, California has this jammy kind of richness, this kind of weight, this kind of superpower to the fruit. The, the really Oregon is about the freshness of the fruit, the kind of vibrancy with a little more acidity behind it, a little more of kind of the tannins that naturally come from the skin behind it without those getting super ripe and, and intense. They're layered, they're rich, but there's a fresh vibrancy to those wines. And Burgundy is rich much more about the earth. It's much more about complexity. It's much more about those terroir-centered details than it is so much about just its fruit. And so what in Oregon kind of strikes this interesting balance. It is not really in a linear equation between California and Burgundy with Oregon in the middle. It's more of a kind of triangle. And certainly Oregon is in the middle of the triangle, but it's on a slightly different plane than either of those other two regions. And if I think you look at it that way, then you can understand what it is that we're doing. Certainly, just like there is in Burgundy, I mean, how many bottles of Burgundy do you buy? And you say, like, why did I spend 50 or 60 or $100 in this bottle of wine? It's just not what I expected. Certainly, Pinot Noir is not easy. You know, I've heard many Cabernet Sauvignon producers say, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to make Pinot Noir. <laughs> you know, or when I, when I really get this figured out, I'm going to make Pinot Noir. Since I've never made Cabernet, I have no idea what that means. I mean, I just hear people say it, and I assume that that must mean that it's hard to make Pinot Noir. Since it's the only red grape I've ever made, then I, to me, it's not that hard. It's just 
it's just what i do mm -hmm. you know but but i think that the the reality for a winemaker is that that Pinot Noir is relatively unforgiving. It's unforgiving of what you do in the vineyard. It's unforgiving if you don't pick it right. And it's certainly unforgiving if you mess it up in the cellar and you can't really resurrect it. If you mess it up, it's just kind of gone. And so there is variation, always going to be variation in the quality of Pinot Noir. But I think overall in Oregon, what has drawn people to Oregon is that generally the quality is is good to very good to excellent rather than sketchy to excellent. I think that generally most Oregon Pinot Noir people will enjoy. You talked about the difficulty of hitting the sub $10 price point with Oregon Pinot Noir just because of how things are structured, what that grape variety entails in terms of yields. Um, is there another grape that would maybe come to mind that could offer that kind of drinkability that's also popular? I mean, for me, I would think maybe Gamay would be something that would have some applicability in that region. And, you know, people who like Burgundy tend to like Morgon. So I just thought I would check in on your your thoughts of, is that a grape that's going to work in Oregon or not? It does work. Uh, and, and it crops generally a little heavier than Pinot Noir. So it's more economically um, suited. For whatever reason, there is not a huge market for Gamay. I see. So it, you're kind of in between a rock and a hard place because they want the sub $17 Pinot, but when you offer them sub $17 something else that's similar, they don't want it. They, yeah, they want Pinot Noir. They don't really want Gamay. Now, there is a group of people that love Gamay. Mm -hmm. You know, Doug Tanell at Brickhouse has always planted Gamay. He's made crew style, so single appellation style like Morgon or Julianus or, you know, Cote de Bruy or those kind of things, even down to the more vineyard designated, you know, um, I'm trying to think of the famous Chateau uh, Beaujolais. It's uh, Chateau Jacques. Yeah, Chateau Jacques. Yeah, um, you know, it, and and certainly he's producing that wine, but it's not sub seventeen dollar. Right, I right, mean, right. It's, right. A, it's a more expensive wine, and there are a couple other people that are producing Gamay at a little more price conscious way. Myron at Amity has produced Gamay for a long time. That's been actually. I'm not sure of the price point, but I think that it's significantly below what the Brickhouse Gamay is going for. And he's actually used to make a Gamay Nouveau that was very price conscious. But it it it, it sold to a select but limited audience. Um, so we've been well, we've been able to produce white wines at that you know ten to twenty dollar range, uh, the Pinot Gris essentially. And now people are starting to make more stainless steel, a little higher yielding Chardonnays. There's Pinot Blancs in that category. Riesling is catching on, but most of the Riesling that people are are producing now are trying to produce a higher end Riesling, you know, more in the high teens into the twenties. So there isn't a big push. I think that Oregon has really decided that because it's so much more difficult to get a higher yield there, mm -hmm. that rather than trying to compete in that lower price point and having such a small viticultural area, uh, that's really more on the margin than it would be farther south, that it makes more sense to concentrate on quality rather than quantity. They're going to seed that yeah. ground. Into, yeah, they're yeah. just going to say we can't really do it. And when you think about it, I mean, Oregon produces one one-hundredth the wine of California. Mm -hmm. That's how small it is. And about one-third of the wine of Washington. So, you know, even if we made a lot of wine in the world of wine, it would still be drop in the bucket. But the Oregon industry, and you've seen this, you've had a front row chair in 24 years working at, at St. Innocent, has gotten a lot bigger. A lot of producers have come on board. What's the tourist situation like? Um, in another 25 years, are we going to see an, an emergent Napa North with the Grand Chateau and uh, more of a tourist curated experience? Or is it always going to seem somewhat like a grower with uh, boots in the ground? Well, I hope it's a balance. Uh, I mean, I, I think that what's happened in Napa uh, is, you know, they're limiting. You can't add a wine with a tasting room. You know, you you can't do this. You can't do that. Uh, because essentially it's a very limited area geographically. There's basically two roads, you know, one on right. either side of the valley. And, and they're full of cars. And the locals are like, I can't even let my kids walk next to the highway because it's dangerous. People have been drinking and driving and, and there's so many cars. It's, it's just not family friendly. It's, it's a commercial district and that's not what we want. I think in Oregon, we have been looking 
at those issues. We're actually looking at them right now. In fact, there's a land use natural resources committee that's that's uh, working on uh, some legislation that's been coming through Oregon legislature the last two sessions. And I'm actually on that committee and kind of looking at how are we really going to regulate ourselves. And it's interesting when you say, well, we want to limit this and we want to limit, you know, what kind of things we can do in the wineries and what kind of things we can do on vineyard property. And the legislators look at you and say, are you crazy? Like, like you want to limit yourself. You want to not be able to do like weddings or birthday parties or festivals or rent your facility out. And we're like, yeah. And they're like, are you nuts? Right. Like, you got to be kidding me, right? Wouldn't you like revenue? Yeah. yeah. And and we're saying- And a tax base is yeah. probably their concern. Yeah. And we're kind of like, you know, no. What we really want is we want people to come and have a really great experience in wine country. We want them to see what it is that we do in the area with the vines, with the barrels, you know, in, in a non-commercialized. And that's really, you know, that's really the way it is. I mean, I have a tasting room. I take it very seriously. I think that it's an opportunity to do education. I'm making, you know, six single vineyard Pinot Noirs and Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, Chardonnay. And, and I feel like it isn't my job just to bring people in and pour some wine in a glass and smile at them. You know, if I'm, if I'm telling the story to the trade and to customers around the country, people come all the way to Oregon, they should get the same story. They should really have the details. And and so the staff is extensively trained and has pages and pages of, of notes and talking points. And, and, you know, they ask questions and they taste the wines. And actually my staff can find taste wines, some of them as well as I do or better than I do, uh, you know, and, and I'm very proud of that. And I think that I'm not alone, that there are a lot of other wineries that take in this, the way they interact with the public and we're trying to create an experience for the public seriously. We finally built, you know, a high level resort. It was actually in Oregon. We wouldn't let them build it in one country. We actually had to build it in a city. And there was a huge controversy. Like this, people are gonna build this wonderful resort. And you don't want to build it in wine country where they can look around? No, actually we don't. We don't want, we don't want a resort with a hotel and a spa and, you know, and all the swimming pool and all this stuff in wine country. We'll put it at the edge of a town. There are some vineyards around it. You know, they bought enough land so it doesn't, it's not, they're not staring at buildings. They're staring at fields and grass, but it's technically in a town. And it's called the Alice and it's quite wonderful. And now we have a resort for people that want that Napa Valley kind of, they want somebody to take care of them. You know, they want to go to wine country and they want to get a massage and, and a spa treatment and facials and they want to have a great meal and now they can come and do it. The best thing about the Allison, and I'm not intending here to plug it, but you go to the Allison and they have feed you this fantastic meal and then they hand you the wine list. And you look at it and say, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, this wine is essentially almost at retail. Mm -hmm. It's it's like, it's literally pennies on the dollar that they're charging for these fantastic bottles of wine. And not just from Oregon, literally you can drink wines from around the world. And the wine list is just like, you know, we're we're providing an experience we're providing you great food. We're charging you for the food, but we want you to drink wine. You're here for wine country. You want to drink wine. Why would we rape you and limit your enjoyment of this experience? I think it's a fantastic attitude. Uh, and there's a lots of small restaurants scattered around wine country. They're doing very wonderful things. Back from the classic Nick's Italian Cafe, which is one of the first people that bought David Lett's early Irie Vineyard wines, you know, through the cutting edge people that are in McMinnville and Dundee and Newburgh, uh, and actually now in Salem, we have some lovely little places in Salem to eat. Um, so you can not only come to wine country and visit literally hundreds of wineries um, scattered around these hills without huge traffic jams and without the commercialization and the kind of, you know, like uh, here it is, you know, this is the menu and, you know, give me your money and I'll give you a drop of wine. It's, you know, hopefully we don't do that. Um, and then you can go enjoy a wonderful meal at a whole variety of places that are often very small, very intimate um, and have very much this sort of fresh Northwest style cuisine, which really accentuates seasonal, you know, local indigenous ingredients. And, and Oregon was one of the places that that started. I mean, Greg Higgins was a huge proponent of that way, way back. And, sure. uh, and but it, it was an infection. And, and essentially, if you're worth your salt and you're a restaurant, you are, you are 
you know, plus we're living in a breadbasket. I mean, you can get every kind of green and vegetable and tomato and fruit that you would want and game. The animal husbandry is amazing uh, within a few miles. You know, I access all my game from a guy who's 30, or all my lamb from a guy who's less than 30 miles away is grass-fed lamb and butchers it himself and brings it to me in a coolers. Wow. You know, and it's all fresh, literally fresh. You know, to have access to that kind of raw material in your backyard, and it isn't just game. I mean, it's chickens and game and beef and quail and pheasant and, I mean, deer. Everything you can imagine is available within minutes of a lot of these restaurants, and they take full advantage of it. So I think for people to come uh, to Oregon wine country, they get a real experience. They get well taken care of. They get well fed, and they still have, it's still a farm. It's still a family business. Well, I hope people do come and visit you, and I yeah. really thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.